Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Please stay and have some tea or coffee with us at the end of this service. And this evening at 7pm, our evening service in Kelvin Side Hillhead Church will be a special service for the week of prayer and communion. Thank you, Anne. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 34. I will always thank the Lord. I will never stop praising him. I will praise him for what he has done. May all who are oppressed listen and be glad. Proclaim with me the Lord's goodness. Let us praise his name together. I prayed to the Lord. He answered me. He freed me from all my fears. The oppressed look to him and are glad. They will never be disappointed. The helpless call to him and he answers. He saves them from all their troubles. Our opening hymn of praise this morning is on the sheet. It's also on the screen. You'll notice we've rearranged ourselves a little bit this week to make it even easier to see the screen, or hopefully easier to see the screen. Um, if you'd like to and are able, you are invited to stand with us as we sing together, King of Glory, King of Peace, I Will Love You. of approach this morning, I'm going to be using a prayer from a newly published book called Naming God. The prayer is entitled All Knowing God and after that prayer we will join together in the Lord's Prayer in our most natural form. So let's pray together. 
all-knowing God, we come to you with the roles we play in different parts of our lives, with the masks we wear to hide our frailties, with the image of goodness we present to others. Ever-present God, who knows us better than we know ourselves, forgive us our frailty and nurture our new beginnings and journey with us on the way of hope. All-knowing God, we come to you with all that has shaped us and made us what we are, with the love and care that has tended and nurtured us, with the hurts and regrets we would hide away and forget. Ever-present God, who knows all that we have been, heal our hurts and strengthen our courage and journey with us on the way of hope. All-knowing God, we come to you with our hopes and dreams for the future, with our uncertainties and anxieties about what lies ahead, with our fearfulness and our desire in responding to your call. Ever-present God, who knows all that we may become, give us confidence and faith for the future and journey with us on the way of hope. All-knowing God, we come to you with all that is in the depths of our being, with the faith that delights and disturbs us, with the prayer of our spirits crying out to you. Ever-present God, who knows our deepest longing, draw us and hold us close to you and journey with us on the way of hope. And in hope, we join together in the words Jesus taught his followers, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
background if anybody wants to come and see what I have got in my hands. Anybody wants to come and have a look? No? Maybe? Fergus is coming. Rory's coming. Lois is coming. Craver and Sarah. Anybody else? Bonnie, do you want to come and see? Aidan, do you fancy coming and a look? No? Okay. Right, what have I got here? Can you see? What do you think those are? Um, you put um, googly eyes on them and you stick glue on them. Yeah, that's right. I've got some fluffy balls that have had googly eyes stuck onto them. Now, on the end of every row in this room, except possibly the front row of the choir, um, but there's enough to go round, there should be a plastic tub that either contains fluffy balls or googly eyes. And what I'd like you to do whilst I tell you a story is for everybody, whatever age you are, to make one of these little pom-pom creatures. So if you want to go back to where you were sitting, that would be great. I'm going to tell you the story about these. Everybody is going to need to have one for later on. So if you don't feel confident about making one, then you need to help get somebody to help you make one. So the eyes are in some of the tubs and the pom-poms are in other of the tubs and we have to share. That's the, that's the unwritten bit of learning for today is sharing. I have got some spares if we're stuck. One of those and two eyes, yeah. Okay, I have more pom-poms and more eyes if they are needed. Anybody need more pom-poms or more googly eyes? And if you need help, if you need help, just ask somebody to help you. You need, you, yeah, your eyes. Eyes. So two eyes or three eyes or 27 eyes. And just peel it off. Um. Would you like some pompons? There's, there's some eyes on the back row. The guys have the eyes at the back. I'll let you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think, they need, I think the girls need some eyes. There's some eyes for the girls. So if you need somebody to help you, that's fine. Just peel off the paper on the back of the eyes and stick them on your creature. You do the creature with one eye, two eyes, three eyes, whatever you think is fine. And whilst you're finishing those off, I will tell you the story. I will. It will happen. Once upon a time, there was a village in a land far away, and everybody in the village cared very much for each other. They were really friendly, kind, and helpful. And everybody in that village had a special bag that was given to them when they were born. And inside that bag were lots and lots of warm little fuzzies. 
warm fuzzies in their bag. And you could give these warm fuzzies to somebody. Perhaps if you saw somebody fall over and cut their knee, you would give them a warm fuzzy and they would feel better. Or perhaps they managed to run faster or sing more beautifully or count to a bigger number than they'd ever done before. And so you might give them a warm fuzzy or they might give one to you. And sometimes, and this was the best of all, people would just give you a warm fuzzy because you were you. You didn't have to do anything or say anything or be anything. It was just something they gave you. Everybody was happy. Life wasn't always good. Things did go wrong. People got hurt. People got sick. But it was okay. This was a land where everyone was okay and they cared for each other. But one day, because this is a fairy story, a wicked witch came along and she was very angry because everybody was getting on in this village and she didn't like it. So she found somebody and she came up to them and she said, now I'm going to give you something much better than warm fuzzies. I'm going to give you cold pricklies. And I want you to give these to people instead. And the person was kind of taken in by this because the witch said, oh, it'll be much better. Trust me, it'll be much, much better. So the next time, they gave somebody a cold prickly. And cold, oh, it was horrible. They felt, oh, oh, nasty and horrible. And they couldn't wait to get rid of it. So they passed it on to somebody else and they couldn't wait to get rid of it. And it wasn't good. And all that okayness in the village was lost. And the people became prickly and harsh. And sometimes they remembered and would give out a warm fuzzy to somebody, but not always. Then one day, a prince, which is a fancy word that could mean it's a prince or a princess, it's got a Z, came to the, the village and saw what was going on, and was really disappointed. And somebody had a cold prickly, and the prince said, give me that cold prickly, I'm going to take it. You're going to take it? Yes, said the prince. Took the cold prickly, and gave a warm fuzzy instead. Oh, the person felt so much better. And so people managed to start giving away the cold pricklies to the prins and giving each other warm fuzzies instead. So what's that story all about? Well, it's kind of a story about us, about people, and how we react to each other. And I know that when I'm tired and fed up and things are going wrong, sometimes I do give out cold pricklies. And sometimes other people give me cold pricklies. And it kind of just gets more and more prickly and cold and uncomfortable. But other times, we give out warm fuzzies. Yesterday, apparently, was National Hugging Day, at least in the USA. And that seemed quite appropriate, really, because <laughs> warm fuzzies are a bit like hugs. The thing is, a hug is something you can't just have. You have to give it. It takes two to hug. You have to share it. You can't, a hug's not a hug till you give it away, really. 
So what I would like you to do, for whatever reason, whoever you choose, I would like you, if you're able, to get up and take your warm fuzzy, and I'll get my warm fuzzy, and just give it to somebody else. They don't have to deserve it. They don't have to do anything for it. They just have to, hopefully, accept it. So can you do that? Can you, on your feet if you're able to. If you're not, it's fine. Just stay where you are and give your fuzzy to somebody else. Can I have one of your fuzzies? Can I swap these with you? Have a fuzzy. That's a very cute fuzzy. Very lovely fuzzy. Okay, does everybody have a fuzzy that is different from the one they started with? Is there anybody who doesn't have a fuzzy? Has anybody got no fuzzies left? We all got a fuzzy. So you can take your fuzzy home with you. And just remember that we are all loved. God loves us very much. And one of the ways we understand God's love is we use the word grace. And I think grace is a bit like a fuzzy. You can't quite describe it. You can't earn it. You can't demand it. But you can receive it. So we're going to sing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
The first reading is from Psalm 51, and it's verses 1 to 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence, and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Finally, Matthew 6, verses 1 to 8. Beware of practising your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, 
who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Amen. We're going to watch a short video clip now. It's quite old. The quality isn't brilliant because of its age and it may take a moment or two to actually load up. But then it might make a liar of me and come up straight away, who knows. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. I am middle class. I know my place. I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. So sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him, because although I have money, I am vulgar. (laughs) But I'm not as vulgar as him, so I still look down on him. I know my place. (laughs) I look up to them both. But while I'm poor, I'm industrious, honest and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. (laughs) But I don't. We all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. I guess they don't make them like that anymore. Often when we see an old video clip like that one, we find ourselves chuckling. We think it's funny. 
But it's more than funny, isn't it? Because within that humour, there is something true. Something about the way people look at each other. And if it was expressed just straightforwardly, that might be quite uncomfortable. Whether it's social status, as it was there, race, nationality, gender, sexuality, education, or any other category into which people can be divided, there is always the potential for attitudes of superiority and inferiority, or maybe attitudes of right and wrong, to arise. Not necessarily because people are intentionally prejudiced, but perhaps because unknowingly or unquestioningly we've absorbed values and views of the subculture of which we are part. And I think this is the kind of thing that is going on in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We have two exaggerated caricatures which Jesus employs to challenge unquestioned presuppositions about who it is who is spiritually superior or inferior, as well as the kinds of prayers that are appropriate and authentic for the people of God. But there's a big difference when we hear the parable than when we watch the two Ronnies and John Cleese. When we watch the video, we kind of do it as human beings. We enjoy it. We laugh at it. But when we read the parable, we kind of put on our holy mindset and miss the fact that there could be some humour going on in there because we're so busy wondering what is the moral lesson that we're supposed to take from it. One of the things I like best about this parable is it is absolutely and utterly impossible to preach on it. You can't do it. What do I mean by that? Well, suppose I decide to comment on the Pharisee, who described himself, presumably factually, as belonging to one of the most strict and devout groups and whose religious practices went far beyond what the law required. If I criticise him, or if I comment on his attitudes, oh, ek, I've just put myself in his place. Because I'm looking at him and saying, well, thank goodness I'm not like that. So I can't do that. Or I could look at the Pharisee and I could say, look, he's great. He's really self-aware, isn't he? He knows all that's wrong in his life and his prayer is really humble and, and earnest. But I'm no better off. Because if I praise or applaud what the, the tax collector does, then I'm saying, well, thank goodness I'm, not, I'm like the tax collector and not like that horrible Pharisee. So I still can't get it to work. And the more I read this parable and the more I think about it, the more I'm sure that Jesus must have had a lot of fun telling it. He uses these two extreme caricatures to tell a story that is potentially quite amusing, but which leaves his hearers no doubt 
that to define myself over against another, whoever that may be, is to be the one whose prayers are self-congratulatory and ungracious. As well as being a parable about prayer, which is the overarching theme we're following at the moment, this is a parable that forces us to face some truths about ourselves and about our attitudes to other people. The problem that the Pharisee has isn't that he's a Pharisee, and it's not that his religious observances are so meticulous. It's the fact that he's allowed his status and his education to shape his attitudes to other people. He has become superior, arrogant, cold, and critical. I'm okay, he thinks, but the rest of you aren't. If we went back to our fairy story, he gives out cold prickles without even knowing, perhaps, that he does it. And I'd like to suggest that the tax collector at least risks an equally unhealthy attitude. He's all too aware of his status in society and the impact that his life may have on his ability to participate in religious life. And so he might think too little of himself and too much of other people. He runs the risk of becoming inferior, disillusioned, cold and resentful. Perhaps, again, if we went back to our story, he'd received so many cold pricklies that he has become cold and hard himself. To reach a position of I'm okay, you're okay, as transactional analysis describes it, and I In mentioning that, I'm conscious there are people who've forgotten more about transactional analysis than I've ever read, so I'm not setting myself up as a guru of this at all, but I'm not going to be in fear and say my thoughts are rubbish either. To get this I'm okay, you're okay position moves us beyond unhealthy, often binary comparisons between ourselves and others. It's not easy, but it's something that we do well to attempt to say that I'm okay and you're okay, that we may be different, but that's okay too. Let's just look a little bit, though, at the prayers. When I was reading commentaries on the parable, I came across an observation that there are aspects of the Pharisees' prayer that, if prayed with a healthy attitude, would be valuable and, in fact, even laudable. His description of who he is and the advantages he enjoys might reasonably prompt him to express gratitude to God. Thanksgiving as a component of prayer, whether private or public, is important. The trouble is that that's not really his attitude. He's in the temple, the most holy place, the centre of the religious observance, but he stands away from everybody else because... You know, he doesn't want to get contaminated by these people who he thinks are beneath him, whose presence offends him. And in my picture, in my head, he's looking around to find somebody who spots that tax collector. And he criticises him as he prays. On the outside, he's a good and righteous man. 
but inwardly he lacks warmth, humility and empathy that you might expect to find in a true believer. You might expect a true believer to give out more warm fuzzies than cold pricklies. It's not just what you pray, it's how you pray it. It's not just what you pray, it's how you live it. And to a degree, at least, we have a choice whether we give out warm fuzzies or cold pricklies. The story doesn't tell us whether these men were praying out loud or silently in their hearts. We've got no way of knowing. But my suspicion is these would have been silent internal prayers. And the only reason that we know what they were praying is because it's a story and the storyteller is omniscient and can see inside everybody's head and read their minds. Outwardly, all we can see is two people. One, we know from what he's wearing, is a Pharisee. The other one, we can tell, is a working man. We may not even know that he's a tax collector. Perhaps in itself, this reminds us that looks can be deceptive. That, as we read in the Old Testament account of God's call of David, people can look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Or as the psalmist himself said, where can I hide from you? And for me, that is simultaneously very sobering and very encouraging. I find it sobering because it reminds me that when I lead worship, when I preach or I pray, I could be able to fool myself. And I might even be able to fool some of you but I can't fool God. But it's also encouraging because on those days when I feel totally inadequate or inept, when I've had a week when it's all been a rush and I've just present you with a very quick draft of something, even if I sense that perhaps you're disappointed and justifiably so, God will know how much I've tried. And that's not just true for me, that's true for all of us. It's true for everybody who takes a role in leading our public worship, everybody who leads Sunday school, everybody who does the flowers, everybody who brings in the biscuits, whatever it is. It's also true of what we do in private, in our thoughts and lives. The little extract from Matthew's Gospel I chose to set alongside the parable seems to pick up some factors that are helpful when thinking about prayer, whether that is public or private, whether it's spoken aloud or it's silently in our hearts, and in fact whether we use words or actions or symbols. It's certainly true that the context in which we pray whether it's public or private, it's a big meeting or a small meeting, will affect the mode of expression. But the underlying values need to be the same. Sorry. Maybe, like me, you have on occasion found yourselves 
in a small group, in a worship setting, perhaps a meeting or whatever. And the leader says, let's have a time of open prayer. And if you're like me, your heart probably sinks a bit. And people are invited to lead short prayers for each other or or on selected topics. And there can be that kind of holy shuffling of feet when nobody quite wants to go first. Or maybe somebody does pluck up the courage and they start off on this prayer that goes on and on and on and covers everything that was suggested and a bit more besides. And you're sitting there thinking, what the heck am I going to say when it's my turn because there's nothing left? Or perhaps you've been in one of those where it kind of goes round the circle and you kind of realise that there's only you left. And if you're like me, your brain can turn to mush and your mouth goes dry and you feel like absolutely anything but prayerful. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that small group prayer and open prayer does have a place. And I have shared in some really good prayer times like that. But it's certainly not the only way to pray, and it isn't inherently any better or any worse, any more spiritual or less spiritual, more authentic or less authentic than silent prayer or prayer guided by one person interceding on behalf of a gathered assembly. If we go back to the I'm okay, you're okay kind of model, open prayer is okay and formal prayer is okay. Pre-prepared prayer is okay, and completely extemporary prayer is okay. They can all be good, and let's face it, they can all be awful. In the passage, two very real risks in public worship are identified, though I think um, to an extent they're true of public or private prayer. The first one in the Matthew story is the risk of practicing piety before others, of enjoying the attention and adulation that can arise from being recognized as a worship leader or a minister or a preacher or a prayer guide, actively going out seeking warm fuzzies, if you like. For me, and if I am honest, I expect for others... This kind of desire for adulation can render me incapable, or fear of this desire for adulation can render me incapable of the task entrusted to me. Because it would be dishonest to say that I don't enjoy receiving compliments now and then, whether it's for sermons or prayers. Of course I do. Who doesn't like to be complimented for something they've done that's well? And it would be dishonest to say that there are never times when I secretly hope that somebody will just come and say something really encouraging or appreciative of what I've said. But I mustn't and we mustn't let that be the norm. We mustn't be motivated by the desire for people to say, thank you, that was great, or, oh, that was really interesting. And, of course, now you're stuck because you can't say anything to say because whatever you say is going to be wrong. So that's fine. Let's just name that and set it aside. Feedback is important, both positive or negative, where that's justified, but it can't be the motivator 
for the person who preaches or the person who prays or the person who plays the music or sings the songs. We don't do it for people to appreciate it. We do it to offer it to God. Saying thank you, though, to somebody who's led our prayers is not about feeding egos. It's about recognising and valuing the contribution made to a shared experience of worship. Very often on a Sunday when somebody else is leading prayer, there'll be a word or a phrase that really resonates with me. And I want to say thank you for that. Or an idea is expressed that to me is new. Or somebody has picked up on a topic that really matters to me in their intercessions. For those, I should say thank you. I also have a sense that most people need more strokes or more warm fuzzies or more words of encouragement because actually it's not about them seeking approval or adulation. It's more about reality that we're worried about getting it wrong. Standing up and leading intercessory prayer, which a number of folk here do week in, week out, is a scary experience. And I know how many hours get spent just trying to craft something that's going to be good enough. And the reality is it only needs one of those cold pricklies to undo a whole stack of warm fuzzies. I can't remember what the ratios are, but people who know these things will be able to Put me right, but you need a lot more positives than negatives. One negative undoes a lot of positives. So it's not about, look at me, aren't I great? I can pray with big words or whatever it is. Secondly, we're reminded that our prayers don't need to be long or complicated or clever. Long isn't better, and God isn't going to be impressed just because I have an extensive vocabulary and can say eschatological or hermeneutical or whatever it is. In fact, Jesus says, God already knows what is needed, so just keep it simple. It isn't the case that everybody has the confidence, gifts or skills to lead public prayer. That's fine. And it really does take courage to stand here, as I've said, offering our hard-wrought efforts to research, choose, write, whatever it is, in the hope that we can help others to bring their thoughts to God. It's a risky business and it's a demanding one. As we balance all those challenges about our attitudes and our motivators and the way we choose to pray. pray. But whatever the subject, whatever the style or the length, the most important thing is that those who guide our prayers from the front need the whole congregation to join in, to listen closely, where possible to own what is said and to echo the intentions that are expressed. Occasionally, we use a verbal response, don't we? Sometimes we will sing a Taze chant or something. Sometimes we will say something like, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And that's an invitation to an overt participation in prayer. These aren't vain repetitions. They're an opportunity to add our own voices to the prayers that are offered. 
And now and then, we might do it with a symbol. We might draw something or write something or light a light, uh, a candle or move a pebble or tie a bow or whatever it is. I offer what I'm saying next cautiously, so please don't hear it as a criticism because it isn't a criticism. One thing that really struck me when I moved here seven years ago is that I very rarely heard an audible congregational amen at the end of the intercessory prayer. Now, that's not a criticism, it's an observation. And in fact, I think that reflects my upbringing in different churches, in different places, where we were taught very clearly that you need to say the amen out loud because in doing so, you're joining in the prayer and you're saying, and I agree. I agree with what's been said. I make this prayer my own and I will respond to what we have prayed. Now, that's not better and it's not worse, but it is different. But I do think it's worth people of either experience thinking how we actually live out the amen to the prayers we pray. It matters not whether we say it out loud or don't say it out loud, but what difference does it make when we go out of that door? And then lastly, there are prayers offered between us and God in the privacy of our own home, in the depths of our own heart. There's no pressure to perform. There's no sense that you might be judged on what you've said. We can just open our hearts and our minds to God exactly as it is. And if that includes swear words, it includes swear words. That is okay. Whether it's a formal quiet time or a daily office, or whether it's those little arrow prayers that, to be honest, I quite often wind up saying, you see something, you say, oh, God, please look after so-and-so. God, let that person be all right. God, give me the courage for this conversation, whatever it is. Absolutely fine. It doesn't matter if they're clumsy. It doesn't matter if they're hesitant. It doesn't matter if they're muddled or even misinformed. We're told that God will hear and accept them. So if you have a discipline of quiet time or a daily office, that's great. And if you don't, but you talk to God in other ways, that's great too. Whether our prayers are thanksgivings for blessings or remorse for failings, whether they're intercessions for the needs of others or invocations of God's Holy Spirit, prayer, both public and private, is a wonderful gift intended to enable us to approach God confidently. We don't need to compare ourselves to anyone else. You don't have to pray the way I do. I don't have to pray the way you do. We pray in our own ways. What matters is that we do pray and that the prayers we pray affect our daily lives. And do you know what? Just now and then, when we get to the end of the prayer, we might feel a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Our next hymn speaks of discovering love in community and discovering our own inherent worth as people made in Christ's own mould. If we have the audacity to believe that that's true, we will grow in healthy self-esteem and equally healthy respect for those who are different from us. 
whether or not we feel the warm fuzzies or the cold pricklies, because both are part of life. Christ is with us on our journey. Take this moment, sign and space. Take my friends around, here among us. Make the place where your love is found. Come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. God of all creation, we come to you now with our prayers for others and for each other. We come tentatively, cautiously, aware of our own limitations and biases conscious that there is much we do not know and cannot understand, that even our carefully honed words and ideas are never entirely adequate. We also come confidently, hopefully, trusting that the promises of Scripture are true, that Christ is for us the perfect high priest, the bridge between earth and heaven, that when words fail us, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, that you are swift to hear and compassionate in responding. 
The Pharisee in the story reminds us of people whose lives are lived in the public eye, whose words and actions are influential on a national or global scale, who are often held in great esteem by those over whom they exercise authority, and who, at best, are subject to human limitations in their endeavours. We call to mind the injunction to pray for those in authority, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. This is hard teaching. And as we look at the world around us, we'd rather it hadn't been said. Yet, we choose to pray for presidents, for prime ministers, first ministers, and all political leaders. That your spirit of truth and compassion will inspire them with values of justice, mercy, and love. Help us to move beyond the inaction caused by fear or bewilderment. Help us to harness the energy of righteous indignation or justifiable anger. Give us the courage to speak and to be bringers of good news. The tax collector in the story reminds us of those whose lives are spent on the margins of society, who, through accidents of birth or force of circumstance, have little or no power, who are ridiculed, demeaned, despised or ignored by those who enjoy greater privilege and who may feel themselves worthless, rejected and excluded. We call to mind the words of the law given to Moses, the warnings of the prophets, the Magnificat sung by Mary, and the Nazareth Manifesto of Christ, requiring us to welcome those who are strangers, to release those held captive, and to bring hope and healing to all. This, too, is hard teaching and difficult to live out. All too easily, we find ourselves praying that you'll fix everything, allowing us to rest easy in our comfy warm beds. Yet, we know that the answer to our prayers is found in our attitudes and our actions. So we pray for ourselves that your spirit of wisdom will empower us to speak and to be bringers of good news. The Pharisee and the tax collector remind us that while everyone is made in your image and likeness, life's events and experience cause damage and distortion so that we may think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves and too lowly of others or too highly of others. We pray that you will enable to know us, us to know ourselves wholly loved and valued by you for who we are 
and then to learn to value others as we ourselves are valued. If we have thought too much of ourselves, forgive us our sins of vanity, arrogance, superiority and condescension. If we have thought too little of ourselves, forgive us the sins of futility, self-loathing, inferiority and defensiveness. And as people who are forgiven and loved, strengthen us for the challenges of the week ahead. For we offer all our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. So loving God, we come to you just as we are and we bring these gifts of money and we offer them in the name of Christ to be employed in the outworking of your kingdom of peace, love and hope in this place and to the ends of the world. Amen. And so we're going to close by singing a hymn version of the Magnificat, which is a great prayer and a great proclamation. 
tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord's children's children and forevermore. Thanks, Paul. May the God who accepts and loves us in our weakness and failings, as much as in our strength and successes, give us the assurance of that truth and sustain us in the days ahead as we try once again to live the hope of which we speak, now and always. Amen.